All right, welcome to the Trinity lesson number four, and this is God the Holy Spirit. We've been covering this now for four weeks. This is our fourth week, and I was just telling someone, I don't know if I've ever taught a lesson where I felt like I had to tiptoe so much so as to not say something too controversial or something that somebody might take way out of context and label me a heretic because there are people who are so hypersensitive to any misnomer or misrepresentation of the Trinity, they would want to hastily label you an anti-Trinitarian heretic. And those people are exhausting, and I'm glad I'm not married to one of them. Talk about the height of legalism. I understand and appreciate doctoral accuracy, um, but sometimes, come on, we're, we're talking about we're children. He's a God, and our understanding is limited. Most folks don't even know how the microwave works. Like most folks can't even turn their phone off in time for service, so the fact that we're having trouble with the Trinity should not surprise anybody. All right? God the Holy Spirit. I've got a quote here from a doctrinal book, a theological book. The mind of man cannot fully understand the mystery of the Trinity. He who has tried to understand the mystery fully will lose his mind, but he who would deny the Trinity will lose his soul. And that is a very, very famous quote of theology quoted several different ways. Sometimes it's, it is credited to Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, but um, it's summarized usually by saying, he that would try to fully understand the Trinity will lose his mind, but he that denies it will lose his soul. Everybody acknowledges it is a mystery, and as we quoted the last two weeks, it's considered the gem and the centerpiece of all divine revelation. As we've said from the very first verse in the Bible, God revealed himself to be a Trinity, the use of the plural Elohim in Genesis 1-1 sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. It says, in God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, in the beginning, Elohim, which is plural, the mighty ones. That is a hard trip for our minds when from the very first revelation of God, he described himself to be a plurality. Plurality, but unity, unity in essence. And again, we, we're careful to use all these terms so somebody doesn't come in and say we're teaching polytheism or somebody come in and say we're teaching a denial of the Trinitarian essence. Interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit is the first person of the Trinity to be distinguished or recognized. So I bet you never saw that coming. You'd think it might be the Son or maybe the Father. But it's actually the Holy Spirit is the first person of the Trinity to stand out in the Scriptures, Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, Elohim, the mighty ones, created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of Elohim, the Spirit, moved or brooded upon the face of the waters. And so in looking at the third person of the Trinity this morning, we actually see that He, because He is a person, though that doesn't mean He's a human, person refers to a personality and an entity. He is the first person of the Godhead that is distinguished in the scriptures and has done so in verse 2 of the entire Bible. It's actually the Holy Spirit that is most tangibly manifested uh, throughout the Old Testament, even more so than the Theophanies of Christ. And we looked at the Theophanies of Christ last week, and it's worth going back and recognizing or studying. Theophany means divine appearance. And so even though we had, uh, I think that we had a list of 10 or 11 theophanies that are the famous theophanies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, beginning with the Lord appearing to Abraham numerous times, and then Moses in the burning bush, and then Joshua and Gideon, 
we'll actually see that the Holy Spirit is more tangibly manifested in the Old Testament than even the Lord Jesus in his theophanies. Now, this is interesting because if we have a theophany of Christ over and over again in the Old Testament and we have simultaneous theophanies of the Holy Spirit, this helps to debunk the doctrine that God is one God but three modes, which is a heresy called modalism, which oneness Pentecostals cling to, which says under the Old Testament it was God the Father. But see, this negates that because it wasn't just God the Father. It was the Holy Spirit manifesting. It was the Lord Jesus in bodily form. It wasn't just the Father because the oneness Pentecostalism, which we'll look at next week, and modalism or Sabellianism, which is kind of the same heresy, they say it's one God, but solid liquid gas. And under the Old Testament, it was solid, the Father. Under the Gospels, it was liquid, the Son. And under the New Testament, it's gas, the Holy Spirit. But that's a heresy because it's saying it's one God in three forms. And it's not one God, three forms. It's one God, three persons. And yet all three persons were manifesting in the Old Testament. But more than the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were manifesting. Remember, we distinguish that. The Bible says no man has seen God and lived. And yet we see the glory in the Old Testament over and over again. And we see the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament over and over again. If I were to put something controversial out there, I would say, you don't see the Father in operation visibly, because it says so, but also he, his role is not being played in the earth. The, the Lord God is manifested through the Holy Spirit and through the Son. Can we understand that? Can you see that? The Father, as we said last week, really comes into focus with the Gospels when the Lord Jesus shows up in the incarnation and begins talking about my father, my father, my father, my father. Before that, there's only about six or seven references that distinguish the father and the son in the entire Old Testament. This helps us to also understand that revelation or our understanding of God is progressive. God has progressively revealed himself to mankind. In the beginning, it was either the Almighty or Elohim, and then it became Jehovah, and then it was Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Shammah, Jehovah Rafi. He was progressively revealing himself to mankind until the fullness when he revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All right? Like I said in the beginning, we know four things about the Trinity. Not much at all. I should say we understand four things about the Trinity. Not much at all. Consider some of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. How about the burning bush? And then we have fire by night. Israel saw this every night for 40 years, a pillar of fire by night. They also had the manifestation of the cloud by day, a pillar of a cloud, the Bible says. Israel saw this every day for 40 years. It's pretty significant from the beginning. As soon as they walked out of Egypt, this pillar and this fire went with them cloud and, and fire. And to see that for 40 years, you had to know that was a sign saying, I am bigger than the Egyptians and I'm bigger than the gods you wanted to worship there because they never did anything like that. And then we have on Mount Sinai, a lot of references to that. God showed up on Mount Sinai. It was a furnace. It was a tempest. It was a storm. It was darkness. It was burning. And it was the glory of God. This cloud came down on the mountain. And then the glory of the Lord, when it filled the, ta uh, the tabernacle over and over and over again, uh, the glory of God fell when any time Moses walked in, God came down to meet with him, which I think is a really powerful encouragement. When you go to your prayer closet, you have to know the same thing happens. You walk into your prayer closet, you walk into your prayer meeting, and I, I believe in the spirit realm, if we could see it, we'd see the glory come down to meet with us. 
We don't always see it because it would take discerning of spirits, but it happens because he said where we are in agreement, two or three, there he is in the midst of us. He wasn't there the moment before. And so some would argue, well, he's everywhere. Mm, He's everywhere because he's omnipresent, but he's not manifested everywhere. Why else would he all of a sudden, he come down in a pillar? Why all of a sudden would he manifest in a glory cloud? He is everywhere, but he's not manifested everywhere. And so in the over and over in the Old Testament, when the priest would do their thing or the man of God would walk into the tabernacle or the temple, God would manifest there in his visible, tangible glory cloud. And that was the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, filling the temple. And in both instances, in the tabernacle and the temple, when the glory was strong enough, people could not even walk into it. It pushed them out or they fell down. They could not stand to minister by reason of the glory. All right, we have to move through all out of this quickly, and you could probably study this for six months, just the Holy Spirit himself. We're Pentecostals. We know we can study him for 60 years. That's just how we are. So the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament. We can see intimations of the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament, accomplishing many of the same things the New Testament church is familiar with today. And I write this section to further debunk the oneness Pentecostalism that says it was the Father at work in the Old Testament. Well, if it's the Father at work, then we should never see the Spirit at work, and we should never see the Lord at work, though it's one God, three persons, co-eternal, co-equal. So Exodus 35, 31, the Lord said, I have filled uh, Bezaliel and Aholiab with the Spirit of God. Wait, wait, the Spirit of God. So God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. So God is talking about another part of his person as a separate entity that he's now placed upon a man, and it has brought upon him wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all manner of workmanship. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the New Testament. He fills us with the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and quick understanding, etc. In 1 Samuel eleven six, the spirit of God came upon Saul. And when he heard those things... And his anger was kindled greatly. So this is talking about uh, the Ammonites uh, threatening uh, part of the Israelite kingdom, a certain city, and said, uh, pluck out your eyes and we won't slay you. And they said, give us a couple days. Let us see if we can get help. Saul is king. He hears about his brethren being threatened by the Ammonites. He hears it. The spirit of God comes upon him and he is so angry. He said, get the armies together. We're going to go open up a can of whoop them. That's why we would said it if he was from the south. Well, we're going to get, get me a thousand chariots loaded down with a whoopum. But it was the Spirit of God that made him angry. And uh, here the Spirit of God communicated righteous indignation onto King Saul in order to accomplish righteous judgment against the Ammonites or God's enemies. So the Holy Ghost came upon Saul and made him angry at the, at the hearing of injustice and, and danger and it compelled him to allocate the armies. Amen. There, anger is not sinful. Uh, sinful anger is sinful. The Bible says we can be angry and sin not. And the Bible says there is a righteous indignation and a wrath of God. And sometimes the Spirit of God comes upon you to accomplish that. First Samuel 19.20, And Samuel was standing as appointed over them. The Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. Here we see the Spirit of God comes upon Saul's messengers. It's a little revival, if you will. And the Spirit of God causes messengers of Saul to prophesy. These aren't prophets. They're not even born again. 
The Spirit of God has always been the Spirit of prophecy. When the Spirit of prophecy came upon King Saul, he began to prophesy. Those who saw the transformation speculated that Saul had become a prophet. And that's what happens. You can be in a meeting and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost gets to moving and he rests upon you and you start prophesying and seeing wonderful things. And if you're not careful, you might think you're supposed to be a prophet or a prophetess. And you're not any such thing. You just happen to walk in to the spirit of prophecy. It's tangible. Just like on the flip side, you could walk past a group of sexual perverts on the street and their demon manifesting among them. You walk past them and all of a sudden you start thinking perverse sexual thoughts. That doesn't make you a pervert. Praise the Lord. And prophesying once in a revival doesn't make you a prophetess. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Psalm 51, 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I thought only the Father was at work in the Old Testament, according to Sabellianism slash modalism slash oneness Pentecostalism. No, the Lord, uh, excuse me, David is talking to his Lord and saying, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. After David's adulterous affair, David could tell that he had grieved the Spirit of God. He feared that God's Spirit had permanently departed him. Uh, we know that in the New Testament, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but you can certainly grieve and quench the Holy Spirit and his anointing lift off of you. Even as Samson, the Lord had departed Samson and he knew it not. And so you'll always be born again so long as you haven't denied Christ, but it doesn't mean you'll ever be used as you were in the height of your holiness and consecration to him. Right now, I think not joyfully, but perhaps righteously, we're seeing a lot of mega churches and their dirty pastors fall like dominoes. I don't say that joyfully, but I say, well, praise the Lord. He's vindicating and cleaning his house. And those men have built empires and they're crumbling. The churches are emptying out. Money's falling off half a million a week at a time. But the thing is, they were building these empires perverted and They'll never be back to where they were ever. God's not denied them, but they'll never have the success they ever had before because they crossed the line. And I say, praise God for cleansing the house. Let it begin with us. Amen. Amen. All right, Second Peter one twenty one, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We're looking at scriptures that prove the Holy Ghost was at work in the Old Testament. And everything he was doing in the Old Testament, we see he's still doing today. So here are the old scriptures, because Peter is an epistle. He doesn't know his writing is going to be canonized into our New Testament Bible. He's referencing all Old Testament scripture. And he says, the prophecy came not in old time. Now, if it's old, it's way before Peter. Not by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The entirety of Scripture was authored when the Spirit of God moved upon the holy men of old. So we see the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the Lord. It doesn't say the Father. The Holy Spirit moved upon and inspired the Word, but the Word is the Lord Jesus. And as we've been going over and over again, we look at all these different Scriptures that indicate the Trinity, and it does make our heads spin a little bit. And we have a few more verses like that we'll look at at the end of this lesson. All right, moving on. The Holy Spirit is recognized as God. The Bible speaks 
of the Holy Spirit is God. The attributes of God are ascribed to him. He does the works of God. He receives the honor of God. He is associated with God on an equal footing. And we have to say this because uh, some folks, they still want to treat the Holy Spirit as a vapor, a wisp, an it. And we forget the Holy Spirit is God. And if you're ashamed of him, you're ashamed of God. Now, that's critical, especially if you're a modern, a New Testament cessationist who denies the gifts of the Spirit and is afraid to let the Holy Spirit move in your service. This is really a a crime and a sin of former Pentecostal tongue talkers who have gone the seeker-friendly route to get more people who claim they're seeking God. But if the Holy Ghost is what we've been given in the New Testament and they claim to be seeking God, then give them the Holy Ghost because he is God. And as we'll look at here in a minute, the Lord Jesus is not in the earth anymore. I said that a couple years ago, and everybody got real quiet, and I thought, that sounds like a wager to me. That feels like a a debate. And I wonder who's going to win this, because I actually study my Bible. I don't just disagree with things I don't like. So I think we end up pulling like 40 or 50 verses that prove the Lord Jesus is no longer in the earth. But doesn't religious sentiment make us feel warm and fuzzy? And we'll look at a couple of those verses here in a minute. The Holy Ghost is who we've been given. He is by, he's the power, he's the person by which we do everything to glorify Jesus Christ. And so it's critical that, as I say, he's more than just a stained glass dove to us. That we operate with him. We, we worship God by his power. We preach under his inspiration. We are led by his guidance. He is all we've got in the earth today because he is the one who was sent back when the Lord Jesus departed. And Jesus said, I'm leaving you for your benefit. You know, the whole fact that Jesus said, I'm leaving you means he's not here anymore. Now he's here through the person of the Holy Spirit. But where is the Lord Jesus seated today? At the right hand of the Father. Now, is that thrown in Baltimore? Is it in Baxter? No. Is it maybe in Jerusalem? No, it's in heaven. God's throne is in heaven and the Lord Jesus is seated at his right hand until God makes his enemies his footstool. So he's not gotten up yet. Just to be clear. So let's look at some things, he, uh, some aspects of the Holy Spirit. If you lie to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. The Bible's very clear on that. Our bodies are the temple of God the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here are verses that equate the Holy Ghost to God. The attributes of God belong to the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of life. He is the spirit of truth. He is the love of the Spirit because God is love. He is the Holy Spirit personifying the holiness of God. He's not called the carnal spirit or the seeker spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. And when he's evident in churches, those churches are holy. Now, we have a couple churches in town that are known for fornicating and drinking. They're the easy churches. When that becomes a church's testimony, the Holy Spirit is no longer at work in those churches. Because when the work of the Holy Ghost is evident, people are convicted of sin and the preacher can't help but scream against sin. Especially if he's actually led by the Holy Spirit. If he's led by money and numbers, well, then he has a different kind of spirit. And it isn't the Holy Spirit. Numbers don't endorse anything. Hell will probably have way more people in it than heaven. Is hell a move of God? Hell is growing every moment. They're having revival. 
but God's not there. Only darkness and torments. He is the eternal spirit, personifying the eternal nature of God. He is omnipresent. Where shall I go from thy spirit, the psalmist said. He's omniscient. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding. Look at all these attributes of the spirit of God. Wisdom, omniscience is all-knowing, if you didn't know the fancy term. All wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, understanding. Uh, the word quick there in the Hebrew is fun. It actually means the speed of smell. That's pretty cool. Quick scent, the speed of smell. That's pretty quick because you still have to process it. Quick understanding. It's like somebody brings in hot apple pie or coffee. I don't know how fast the speed of smell is, but it's pretty quick. And the second you smell it, you still have to process it. But if you know that smell, you know that smell. They didn't understand the speed of light in biblical times. So how about the speed of smell? Nothing travels quicker than the speed of smell, except for the speed of light. But you can usually smell food way before you can see it. So maybe smell is much faster. I'm not a physicist, so I don't know. I'm just making this up now. John, thank you. John is good doctrine, isn't it? John 14, 26, especially when your God is your belly. John 14, 26, the Holy Ghost shall teach you all things. All things means he knows all things. And then he's omnipotent, all-powerful, Romans 1, 4. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. You have to be all-powerful to raise God from the dead. Only God can raise God from the dead. Uh, we're kind of, in this, the course of these lessons, our mind is being tweaked and stretched by the nature, the, the triune nature of our God, but we don't ever bother to kind of bog down and wonder, how does God become a baby? be empowered by his own spirit to preach his own word to fulfill his own prophecy and still die have God turn his back on him him descend into the grave for three days and three nights to preach more gospel down there and then resurrect himself by his own spirit to be seated at his own right hand and that's why we just say it's a mystery <laughs> and sometimes you just say Jesus I love you <laughs> I love you Jesus <laughs> And in the end, you realize we're just children. We're children trying to understand and comprehend the nature and essence of an eternal God. And it can't always work for us because our understanding is limited. 1 Corinthians 2.11, Even so the things of God know no man but the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God knows the things of God. How many things are there to know about God? All of them. And the Spirit of God knows all of them because he is omnipotent all-powerful. I should, probably should have gone under omniscience. I may have added that in the wrong direction. The works of God are ascribed to the Holy Ghost. He's involved in creation. He's involved in casting out demons. He's involved in the conviction of sin. He's actually the, the I don't know, what's the word? I got to find the right word so I'm not labeled a heretic. That's not a good word. He's the one that makes you born again. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes you born again. He didn't redeem you. Jesus did. But Jesus Christ said you must be born of the Spirit by the washing of regeneration, the regeneration of the Spirit of God. And so you see the new birth there, John 3, 8 and Titus 3, 5. He is involved in the regeneration. If any man be in Christ, but who baptizes you into Christ? The Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12. 
If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. So the Holy Spirit's association with God in the baptism formula, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the three are presented there as equal. And then in the apostolic benedictions, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So notice the Spirit of God is, is equated to God through the association. And then the opening benediction or greeting of 1 Peter Elect according to God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience of the blood of Jesus Christ. So there we see the Trinity all equal, all having a different role to play in the life of mankind or the, in the existence of mankind. That is a concept we introduced last week that I don't believe is controversial, but if, if you haven't ever heard it, you can tiptoe testing or tasting, testing the waters, making sure they're okay. But it should be a common sense notion to understand that even though it's one God, three persons, unity in essence, unity in, in person uh, or in presence and in, in, in deity, that each of the persons of the Godhead plays a different role in mankind. Each of the persons of the Godhead, from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they each have a different role in our life. As we said last week, the Holy Spirit didn't die for you. The Father didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus doesn't give you gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you gifts. But the Holy Spirit doesn't give you ministry gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men. The Father didn't give gifts unto men. The Holy Spirit didn't give gifts unto men. Only Jesus, when he ascended on high, gave gifts unto men. And so we see this played out over and over again. We'll look at that again more near the end of this chapter, or excuse me, this lesson. A lot to cover. He is a person, and this is critical too. We must not uh, think of the Holy Spirit as a wind, a vapor, a wisp, a puff of smoke, a dove, or simply a force. Now, if we have thought of him thus far, that's just ignorance and just not bothering to get to know him or the scriptures better, but that would borderline be insulting if he is a person and we just think of him as a dove. Uh, if he's a person and we think of him as a breath, he is a spirit, but the Bible says God is a spirit. He is God. He is the third person of the Godhead. And so personal pronouns are used in relation to him. Personal pronouns not impersonal. So he, him, his, not it, it's him, him, him indicates a person, personage. He can be mistreated like a person. You can't mistreat a force or a wind or a wisp or a vapor or a puff of smoke. He can be lied to. Now the question is, are you really lying to the Holy Ghost if he's the spirit of truth? You're trying to lie to him. He's not deceived. He can be resisted. He can be tempted, or that, that word means tested. You can't tempt God. James 1 says so, but the word tempt means to test, like they tested God in the wilderness for 40 years. He, he demonstrates emotions. How about that? He demonstrates love. He can be vexed. Isaiah talks about vexing the spirit, or even as Genesis 6, 3 says, my spirit will not always strive or be vexed with mankind. He can be grieved. The Bible says, grieve not the spirit of grace whereby you're sealed. He can be insulted. King James says, do not despite unto the spirit of grace. 
So did you know you and I can insult him? I would hope if we're doing so, it's out of ignorance. Like the, the, the Christian doctrine called cessationism, that just means you believe the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. And if that's the case, I'm not really sure what you think the Holy Spirit is doing in the earth. There is more of his ministry, but that's insulting to, for the Holy Ghost to be doing something in part of the body of Christ. And if your doctrine is cessationism, you say, that's not God, that's a demon. So you're giving the demons credit for what the Holy Ghost is actively doing. That is insulting. Now, I believe they do it in ignorance, but it's still insulting. In that regard, they're immature in their doctrine. And I don't understand why they believe in cessationism. There's no scripture that promotes it. And even the Baptist report that I read earlier this year said that Pentecostalism is the fastest growing part of the body of Christ in the earth. In fact, in what's called the global south, that is everything south of the west. The west is typically about 35 to 40 degrees north latitude. Everything globally south. I think they said 80% of it is Pentecostal Christianity. So 80% of the move of God in the earth is tongue talkers, casting out devils, doing the gifts of the spirit, and cessationists, mostly Presbyterians and Church of Christ. They say that's not God, that's a devil. Now when I go on the mission field, I don't meet Presbyterians or Church of Christ. No disrespect to them, but I don't meet them. I meet Pentecostals. <laughs> Amen. So that kind of doctrine is insulting to the Holy Spirit. He can be quenched. The Bible says quench not the Spirit. He possesses a will. He divides his gifts as he wills. So if you're a wisp in a vapor, you don't have a will, but the Holy Spirit is a person and he's the one that distributes the manifestations as he sees fit. And according to Romans 8, 27, he has intentions. Uh, it says that he that judges the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, for he maketh intercession according to the will of the Father. But the mind of the Spirit there, the word mind is a Greek word that means intention, what you have purposed. So he that judges the hearts of man, which is the Lord Jesus, he knows what is the intention of the Spirit. So if you have intention, you have a personality. If you have a personality, you are a person. And he has personal actions. He teaches, he speaks, he testifies. So let's look at this next part, and this is what we're going to wrap up on. The New Testament role of the Holy Spirit. This is critical because, as we have said, the Holy Spirit is who is in the earth. God is on his throne. The Lord Jesus is at his right hand. And this doesn't mean the Lord Jesus doesn't come and visit his churches from time to time, even as he does in the Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he was walking among the seven golden candlesticks, which were the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, or also called the seven churches of the Apocalypse. So evidently the Lord Jesus Christ has the ability, he is God, by the way, to stand up from his throne when he wants to and, and investigate and judge and interrogate and do the things that he needs to do. But primarily, he said, it is finished, which meant his work. And then he sat down. In fact, that's what Hebrews tells us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's done. His work is done. Now he sits there to make intercession for us as our advocate. If any man said he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's at the right hand of the judge saying, I, I covered their sin. Don't hold it against them. I believe on the other side is Lucifer making accusation. He's called the accuser of the brethren. Who does he make the accusations to? And if we have to have an advocate defending us before the Father, there has to be someone accusing us before the Father. So this becomes a little doctrinal debate. 
So is Lucifer kicked out of heaven yet? According to the revelation, it hasn't happened yet. He will be cast down at some point. Then he'll know his time is short. But that becomes a study of eschatology, and we don't have time for it. Not right now. The departure of Jesus Christ from the earth at the ascension was necessary for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Jesus is no longer in the earth. Consider a few scriptures I pulled for your edification. <laughs> just a few. I didn't pull all of them. I just thought, well, let me just run a couple little cross-references here. <laughs> Christ's departure was an exchange of his presence for his omnipresence. Think about that. To me, that's a, I borrowed that from a theological commentary I need to give credit to. I think it was uh, Strong's commentary from 1908. His departure was an exchange of his presence because he could only be in one place at one time in bodily form for his omnipresence. He poured out the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. When the Lord was in the earth, he could only be around a couple of flesh. He poured out of his spirit upon all flesh. And now this morning, all over the world, people are worshiping the Lord. Jesus is manifesting by his Holy Spirit in churches and congregations all over the world today. He's everywhere in manifested form. It was an exchange of limited for unlimited power. Because he could only be in one place working the signs of his father, the power of his father. And now his body is worldwide. Demons are being cast out all over the globe. In the day of the Lord Jesus, it was only him and a handful of disciples casting out demons. Amen. People are being healed by the power of the Holy Ghost all over the earth today. It was an exchange of companionship for indwelling. I like that. I like that. Jesus said, it's better that I leave you because then the Holy Ghost will come and he will be in you. You have known him. He's been with you, but he shall be in you. And that's what we have now. Just as Jesus came to accomplish a specific assignment, redemption, the Holy Spirit has come to accomplish another specific set of assignments necessary for God's glory and man's benefit. The Holy Ghost was given to benefit us, and when we're benefited, God is glorified. I've been meditating on this simple fact a lot lately, ever since Dr. Baird was with us. It really challenged me. But almost everything God does for his glory benefits us. Somehow he has orchestrated it in his divine wisdom that his help in our life is what glorifies him. Now, this is a little antithetical to religion that says you need to have a broken kneecap and lose three babies and God gets glory out of that. But when you stop to think about it, if you're healed, you glorify God. If you prosper, you glorify God. If you get the victory, you glorify God. If you get the promotion, you glorify God. If you establish a church, you glorify God. You win the loss, you glorify God. Your marriage is fixed, you glorify God. It seems like wholeness, wellness, completion, restoration, promotion, these are positive words that glorify God. Death, destruction, loss, calamity, that doesn't really seem to glorify God. And yet religion has convinced us to take it, to suck it up, to suffer under it, and thereby glorify your Father in heaven. And the more I think about this, the more it's so counterintuitive. Years ago, I was talking to a young man. Well, he was my age, but we were in our college years. And he had HIV, and folks were trying to get him healed by feeding faith and healing scriptures to him. He got HIV through a blood transfusion as a child. And unfortunately, he got around a bunch of... Uh, Christians that prefer death to life, that's dumb. Because the Bible says choose life. I mean, if you pass, you have to purposely ignore God to fail that test. 
So we had built his faith. I didn't have much doing with it, but us college kids. And when I got a hold of him, I, I said, you still standing in faith for your healing? He said, no, no. Uh, I, I see from the scriptures now that I'm to be partakers of Christ's suffering. Now, I was, I was about 20 at the time, so I didn't know how to debate that. And, and so he starts showing me scriptures about Christ's suffering. And I was, anyway, long story. I'm walking across the street having left the meeting. And I, I said, Lord, that's not right. Something's not right about that. Something's not right about that. What's not right about that? And I was crossing the street and walking to my car, and the Holy Spirit asked me, he said, um, what did Christ suffer? And I said, uh, I don't know. What did you suffer? And I realized instantly Christ never suffered HIV, so that can't be part of the sufferings of Christ. And the Holy Spirit answered me. He said, the Lord Jesus suffered persecution, betrayal, and martyrdom. He was never sick. He never lacked, for God was with him. So it's a fallacy to presume that the sufferings of Christ mean we suffer like the world does. We are guaranteed persecution. We are guaranteed hardship. We're guaranteed to, uh, to be attacked for our faith. But when the redemption of Jesus Christ promises provision in all aspects, how can that be the sufferings of Christ? The sufferings of Christ must thereby be the same thing Christ suffered. Otherwise, it's not the sufferings of Christ. So... The role of the Holy Spirit in the earth today is to glorify God by helping our lives. Jesus Christ said, I will give you a paraclete, an advocate, uh, a helper, one called together with against. And if the Holy Ghost is our help, then we ought to be marvelously helped. Amen. So let's look at these last couple points here on our curriculum. The Holy Spirit was sent from heaven after the ascension of Jesus Christ. He, so here's some of the New Testament roles of the Holy Spirit as we're kind of wrapping up our teaching on the Trinity here. He is the convincer and the reprover. One of the first things the Lord Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and what are called the paracletical teachings of Christ, he says the Holy Ghost convicts people. Uh, somehow the modern church has lost track of that truth that the Holy Spirit makes people uncomfortable. When you're sinful, you should be uncomfortable. Fornication is still a sin, and you should be convicted of it. Adultery is still a sin, and you should be convicted of it. Alcohol is still a sin. You should be convicted of it. Amen. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And by the way, if you and I are sinful, we should be convicted still. If we're living like the world, we should be convicted of it. He's the regenerator. The Holy Spirit is the agent of salvation. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Redeemer. It is His blood. Holy Spirit doesn't have blood. But it is the Holy Spirit that is the agent of salvation. He is how we can be, quote, in Christ. We must be born again or born of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. This is the fancy word paraclete or parakletos in the Greek. And this is the word that's translated many different ways. Helper, comforter, aid, advocate. He's the one called together with, against. If the Holy Ghost is with us against everything we're facing, I think that kind of equals total victory. If the Holy Ghost is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to be another comforter, another aid, another guide, another defender, if just like the Lord Jesus was with the 12 disciples and the 70, the Holy Ghost is with us, then I think we got victory everywhere we go. Amen. He's the divine guide. The Holy Spirit was sent to guide the believers in the will of God. 
He's the revealer. The Holy Spirit was sent to reveal the things of the Lord Jesus to the church. Jesus said, I have many things to say unto you, but you're not yet able to bear them. Howbeit, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, he will lead you and guide you. He'll reveal things to you. He's the intercessor. Thank God we have an intercessor. Now, this is interesting because the word paraclete is used here, and it's used in 1 John to talk about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is our advocate at the right hand of the Father, and apparently the Holy Spirit is our advocate in the earth. Sort that out, same word, parakletos, but that's what the Lord Jesus said. I'll send you another comforter, another parakletos. The word another is another of the same kind. Jesus was one paraclete. The Holy Spirit is another paraclete, an aid, a helper, an advocate, one called together with against. And if God be for us, that would kind of be the notion of parakletos. What can be against us? Who can be against us? So as the Lord Jesus, according to Romans 8, 26, as the Lord Jesus searches our hearts, and judges his findings according to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us to keep us in the way, as in he is the way. Christianity was first called, quote, the way. You have to understand that because we think you're getting in the way. That's a negative connotation to Americans, but first century Palestine, you wanted to be in the way. It's the only way you got to heaven. And then at Antioch, they were called Christians in a mocking term. The Holy Spirit, his role is our fruit bearer. He has nine fruit that he wants to produce in our life. He wants to help the church produce the nine fruit of the Spirit, which I have come to understand recently as I'm working on this new book. I'm calling the fruit of the Spirit, honestly, the attitudes of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at all nine fruit as an attitude, a loving attitude, a joyful attitude, a peaceful attitude, a kind attitude, a gentle attitude, an attitude of self-control, you'll really quickly understand how to judge whether you have them or not. So the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can produce the nine fruit of the Spirit and thereby glorify our Father. He is the power exhibitionist. I like that. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The Holy Spirit was sent to manifest or exhibit the power of God through nine gifts of the Spirit. This has not been done away with. We see it here. You see it wherever people are really hungry for God. Folks say, we well, don't see it in our church. Like I said, you'll see it where people are really hungry for God. Well, that insults me. Well, then get hungry for God. You see it in the third world. Why? Because they're hungry for God. They don't have a Walmart or a Starbucks or a car. They walk everywhere. They have no health insurance or medical care. They have to be hungry for God. And that's where you see manifestations of the Holy Ghost. When you live in a sea of intellectualism, comfort, and middle-class equality, you're not going to see the Holy Ghost. Why? Because you don't think you need him. The real ticket is to have the prosperity of God through intellectualism, education, provision, and still be hungry for God. Amen. He's the sanctifier. The Holy Ghost was sent to sanctify the individual believers. His work in our life should make us holy, even as he is holy. You can tell you have the Holy Ghost because you walk in holiness and you're convicted of sinfulness. When sinfulness makes you uncomfortable, that's the work of the Holy Ghost in your life. His descriptor, his adjective is holy. He produces what he is. And if a Christian is comfortable around sin, they don't fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's good preaching so far. I don't know. Steve-O's got me fired up. Here's one of the best ones. There's probably one or two more that I left off, but we're, I can only write so much in a curriculum. He is our tongue's equipper. 
The Holy Spirit was sent for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called his baptism. It's not John's baptism. It's not the baptism of the believer. It's not the baptism of fire. It's not the baptism of affliction. Baptism of fire is, we would split the hairs and say, fire talks about tribulation. Christ said, can you be baptized with the baptism I baptized with? Yes, you can. Yes, we can. Indeed, you will be. That's a baptism of affliction. And they were prophesying their own martyrdoms. Can you drink from the same cup? Yeah. I don't know if I would want to. All but John died martyrs just like their Savior. That's the same cup. The real sufferings of Christ. He allows the believer to pray in other tongues. Over 100 scriptures teach us the doctrine of tongues. Actually, it's like 128, 134. Only 21 scriptures teach us about water baptism. So we have five times the scripture on tongues than we do water baptism. In summary, the Holy Spirit dwells in and empowers the church, the body of Christ. So as we wrap up this lesson here on the the Trinity, um, bonus Trinity scriptures, Proverbs 30, verse 4. I like this prophecy out of the book of Proverbs. Who who, uh, hath ascended up into the heavens? Or descended, we know that's Christ, who has gathered the wind in his fist, who has bound the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name, if you can tell me? That's a scripture from Proverbs that indicates there's a father and a son. Isaiah 48, 16, come near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I, and now the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. Now, God is speaking. God is speaking and God is saying, the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. So you have the Trinity revealed in Isaiah 48, 16. God hath sent me and his spirit. But who's speaking? God is speaking. It's a, it's a really cool. It's a, a foreshadow of building the Trinitarian doctrine in the Old Testament. And then Hosea 1, 7, I, God, God speaking, will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by Jehovah, their God. Wait, so I, God, will save them by their God, Jehovah, which is the self-existent. God, there's Elohim, the plural form of God, the mighty ones. So God is speaking of himself in third person. I made that joke. God doesn't speak in third person. He speaks in three persons. That's funny. I, God, God, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. I will save them by Jehovah, their Elohim. Jehovah, the Lord, their mighty ones. But that's God who's speaking. May we continue to love and seek after this perfect and holy triune God. Like I said, there's four things we know about the Trinity, not much at all. But hopefully these lessons have shown us there's a lot more to this doctrine than we've even scratched out. Even being raised Baptist, singing holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. There's so much more to this. And in the end, we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're just children trying to understand our Father. Amen.